It's Lucy Litch, and this is Tiny House Conversations. It's the Australian-based podcast where I interview experienced tiny houses, tiny builders, and adventurers in the tiny world, so you can discover how to create, build, and transition into tiny life. Welcome back to Tiny House Conversations. Joining me on the show today is Emmett Blackwell, a strategic town planner from Western Australia and an experienced DIY tiny houser who over the years has built and lived in tiny houses in the Byron Bay hinterland of New South Wales, as well as renting out his tiny house on Airbnb for some extra income. Today, he's still small space living on his own 40 acre property in Western Australia with his wife and currently living in a donga, which if you're not familiar, is a portable cabin of sorts, whilst working slowly on another tiny house on the side. In this episode, we talk about some of the challenges of building and living in a tiny house, how Emmett was able to easily find a parking space for his tiny home in Byron Bay, including how he got around 30 offers in 48 hours. Yes, you heard that correctly. We also talk about the eco-community experiment in Victoria that Emmett was a part of and why living in a community may not be for him. We touch on Australian tiny house council regulations and building codes, the composting toilet setup that Emmett used, and lots more. Now let's go chat with Emmett. Hey Emmett, welcome to Tiny House Conversations and thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Beautiful. So, you know, a few years ago you were living in a tiny home on a 40-acre organic farm in the Byron Bay hinterland in New South Wales and since then you've relocated to Western Australia and uh, you've now got your own 40-acre rural property and what I'd love to do today is take things back to your tiny home experience in Byron Bay uh, and then we'll move into how you're living now, talk about the tiny home that you're currently building and, you know, see what you're up to with your plans for, you know, different projects on your land. Let's start with your story. Can you share with us a little bit about what inspired you to start your tiny house journey? Okay, a um, bit of a background, I guess. Um, I studied urban and regional planning at uni. I kind of had the pressure to go to university and um, for some reason I chose <laughs> urban and regional planning uh, and became a town planner. And I think, you know, I've always had an interest in social and environmental um, justice issues. So that led me down that path in study. And I was probably a bit naive thinking town planners can have a positive influence on the world, change the world, that kind of thing. So I always had those environmental and social values sitting in the background and driving me professionally as well as in my personal life. I think I became quite jaded and bitter just about, I guess, the situation um, of the, the system we're in with property and real estate and the amount of money and I didn't want to be a wage slave and I was kind of, you know, I went to university, I got a job, I was ticking those boxes. All of my friends were getting married and buying houses and, you know, we're talking half a million dollar houses and mortgages that last a lifetime and I saw a picture in a, a book on tiny houses maybe 10, 12 years ago now. Um, I was one of Lloyd Kahn's books and it had a selection of different tiny houses, some on, uh, on boats, in trees, um, earthen tiny houses and one section happened to be tiny houses on wheels and it was the first time I'd ever seen a tiny house on wheels before and it just blew my mind that you could um 
essentially own it, it separated land and ha home ownership so you could own your own home but not be in a world of debt I, I would have been in my late 20s by that stage or mid mid 20s by the time i saw that and it, something just popped and i went on a bit of a journey i guess like i'm not a, a tradesman i'm not qualified or trained um formally with with building or carpentry but I got to a point where I, I walked away from a, a local government job I'd been in for five years in the city in Perth and um, I paid to go to a natural building course over east in Victoria. I had some friends in Victoria and started spending a bit of time in Melbourne and the surrounding areas and uh, I guess it's just a, more of a critical mass over there of people thinking alternatively, doing things differently so there's more opportunities. Um, being from Perth and WA, it's, we're the most isolated city in the world so it was great for me to just get on the east coast and explore some of those social networks around the natural building scene um and i think i knew because i i didn't own land at that point um that an inroad to dabbling with some building and yeah trying to own my own home or just some housing security and flexibility that, that a tiny house on wheels has has come to represent meant that I started, you know, hang out with people who were building earth ships and cob houses and earth bag adobe and a lot of different natural building techniques. But I think I knew that um, I wanted to learn enough carpentry skills to build my own tiny house on wheels. That seemed like a, an achievable goal without, you know, the mortgage and stuff like that. I, I did it really low cost. Working on a bunch of projects for other people's tiny houses or at eco villages, um, for free without getting paid or and that kind of flowed on from the natural building course I had paid for and then the networks that opened up from there I found myself living on an, an eco village a bit of a social experiment in Gippsland um, for two years and I had an opportunity um, to build my own tiny house on wheels with recycled materials I was very fortunate that I was living um, with very little money for that time and, and was able to devote a lot of labor and time so that's you know there's a lot of privilege in in my ability to kind of take some time out from the office life that i'd previously known and just pursue uh, learning carpentry and then putting it into to practice and still learning at the same time as i built my house and we ran that as a workshop i had people coming and learning and helping build my house um, we kind of ran that at low cost and had people camping out in gippsland for five days and I had some um, friends from that network of natural builders who were qualified carpenters who kind of helped me run the show and piece that together. Uh, and we got it to kind of, um, we got the frame up and, and started cladding the outside and preparing windows. And then I just kind of finished it off over about a year um, out on that farm in Gippsland. And once I'd finished, uh, I was pretty sick of the cold because it was a lot colder there than I'm used to in Perth. Um, so I headed up the East Coast and went north basically went straight up to the Byron hinterland. I did stop um, along the way at a few few places where I had friends. And yeah, just really enjoyed living in my tiny house. I basically finished it and then went north, ran a few workshops on the way on tiny houses in, um, in Melbourne, Sydney, and um, then got to Byron and just enjoyed living in it. Um, ran a workshop eventually in Byron and just did odd jobs, a bit of carpentry work, a bit of lots of different things. Um, I had that flexibility to kind of just tap in and out of casual roles. And then eventually I got to a point where I'd been on a few different properties, beautiful properties in the Byron area. I'd kind of figured out how to just look online using Facebook and stuff for land and a cute picture of a tiny house goes a long way. And I ended up on a property where I was able to actually rent it out on Airbnb and I'd be staying in my camper van or in a tent while I was renting out my house. And that gave me enough money 
to kind of make ends meet. And I had a, a good agreement with um, the landowner there who, you know, I think I was paying um, a certain amount per week to be there, even if I didn't have uh, any rentals in the tiny house. And then um, the owner got a 25% share of um, the total Airbnb payments. And, you know, I did all the manage management and um, cleaning uh, for that Airbnb business. But yeah, it was, it worked really well and people loved it. And for me, it was about sharing um, some of the, I guess, environmental messages and giving people an experience, a positive experience of, of a more simple way of life with a, a really small footprint because we're talking kind of compost toilet, off-grid solar system in the back paddock of a farm um, that was, wasn't being used at the time. So um, it was nice to share that with people, but that also funded my basic needs for, for petrol and food um, and paying, you know, my my rent on that farm to keep everyone happy. And I, I had a really good um, relationship with the landowner, which was fortunate. He was a lovely guy. So, yeah, that's kind of the journey up until I arrived in Byron Bay and just really enjoyed living in the house, taking a bit of time out, doing odd jobs and getting the Airbnb up and cranking. I think I did two summers worth. And, yeah, it, it was a really nice experience. Um and that gave me the flexibility to eventually I got offered um, the opportunity to tour guide up in Kakadu. I'd never even been to the Northern Territory. It was just a mutual friend who'd done it for a long time and had contacts and thought, oh, you, you'd be able to kind of do that. Your personality is suited and, you know, I'm an outdoorsy person. So I went up um, tour guiding uh, in the, the top end in the Northern Territory, um, doing four and five day uh, like fall drive tours that involved, um, yeah, a lot of nature and indigenous culture um, that was fantastic and i met my partner up there who i'm with now lindell and so that i guess ended my time in byron bay and um i i dipped back into town planning just to be up there because tour guiding seasonal work and um it, it also means i'm on the road five or six days a week so i'd moved up there to be with my new partner lindell she was a, a high school teacher up there in darwin and um that led me back into some town planning work for a while <laughs> uh, for the NT government, actually. But it was just to kind of, yeah, make it work and be up there for a while. I was fortunate to be in a safe government job <laughs> in a planning department um, for the territory government up there. And that meant that I could actually buy a cheap bit of land. I, I didn't look terrible to the banks at that stage. If, if I'm sure if I applied for a mortgage while renting my Airbnb um, tiny house that wouldn't have gone too well but um, Lyndall and I were fortunate to be in a position that we were able to grab um, a 40 acre property um, we bought it really quickly because uh, properties were starting to fly off the shelf especially in regional areas close to the coast and it's quite an isolated area um, it's there's not a whole lot going on apart from national parks and four-wheel drive tracks and beaches but that's why we're there we really love it yeah, my tiny house is actually still on the farm in Byron Bay and, and that farm's up for sale at the moment. I'm going to be looking to get it back here as soon as I can, but that's quite challenging because um, yeah. obviously the borders um, have been quite tough in Western Australia. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll see what happens in terms of timing of getting that tiny house uh, over here. But in the meantime, over the last few years, I've, I've slowly been chipping away on another tiny house, but that's been hard to get much traction because I, I, I'm now working yeah, back back a full-time kind of government planning job, which is it's really good and there's opportunities where I can plant seeds and do positive things in terms of tiny houses and environmental um, change. 
Um, but it means my time's taken up with just the nine till five at the moment. So um, that's what I'll be doing for a while. And hopefully that's, you know, do a stint for a, a number of years and then get back into more building tiny houses and probably doing some ecotourism stuff down here to give people, you know, valuable experiences in tiny house living and environmental consciousness. And yeah, that's kind of where we want to take things back to, I guess I, I tested the waters with the one tiny house in Byron and, um, you know, now we've got our own property, we can kind of um, scale things up a little bit and, um, yeah, got, got a few things, you know, planned yeah. and, and on the boil, but um, it's just going to take, a, it's the long game, I guess. It might take us a few years to get all of that stuff set up. Yeah, amazing. Wow, you've had such a, an interesting journey uh, and I loved hearing all of that and there, there's so many directions I'd love to go, but I'd first love to just know, you, you mentioned how you, were living in that eco-community experiment down in in Victoria. And I actually watched that documentary, The S- uh, Simpler Way, I think it's called. Is that right? That was right. documented yeah, that. One. Yeah. And I, I would just love to know from you because that's something that I feel at some point in the future would love to work towards. And I know that a lot of other people especially with everything that's going on now in the world, you know, having that kind of interest of going tiny or moving on to land, but also being able to be around, you know, other like-minded people. So what was that experience like for you living amongst community, especially maybe with some people that you didn't know initially? Um, Yeah, well, I didn't know anyone initially um, who was living on that that project. So I I kind of rocked up cold and got to know people. Um, There were some links in my network um, through Natural Building in Victoria um, to that group of people, but um, everyone was fresh and and, um, that was a really unique, I guess, social experiment because we're essentially living in an eco-village and building um, different forms of tiny homes and living quite simply um but we hadn't bought in we hadn't you know paid money to buy a share on an eco village it was known that this was probably only a 12-month project and and it ended up kind of blowing out to about two years but some people left before the 12 months were up and others stayed i I think it was one of the longest people there and the tiny house project i was working on kind of kept me busy and kept me there it was a fantastic experience really profound really intense um you know there were some people um that i'm really great friends with now and have made lifelong connections and there's other people I probably didn't get along with as well and um you know I think it's representative of of all kind of human relations or communities um yeah it was certainly a boiling pot of passionate people and um I'm really proud that I I took part in that project I think I learned a lot about community and communication and I guess I've I've established where I think my boundaries are in terms of um, wanting independence or privacy, um, time alone versus time in community. And I think there's value in both and everyone's balance is different. And I think it's a really tricky thing to make work. You know, the most intentional communities, even if it's with your, your friends or your family, most of them don't last. <laughs> it's, it's really hard to balance that social dynamic. Uh, everyone's got different expectations. People go through phases in their lives. They go through illness, mental illness, and, and navigating all of that as a community is difficult. So, I, yeah, for me personally, I don't know if community life is is for me. Um, I, I did have a three-month stint on another intentional community, which was permanent, where people had bought in, and, and that was on the east coast between Sydney and Byron. And um, that was also fascinating. I kind of stuck around for 
for three months, I think it was, and actually went to some of the community meetings and got a taste of what um, living in an intentional community more permanently might be like and some of the social dynamics and history uh, of that um, particular community. And that was really fascinating. Uh, and I enjoyed my time there. But, you know, I experienced conflict and complex histories and people come and go, um, even just in the three months that I was there. Um, and uh, again, I made some really amazing connections and probably lifelong um, friendships. And, and it's nice to be able to go back to a place like that. And I think that's where, for me, um, the tiny house on wheels was really empowering because uh, at the end of the day, if I um, parked up in someone's community or backyard or farm, I was there to kind of make the most of it and, and have a crack. But if things turned sour or they had to sell the land or things change, um, I had that flexibility to very easily and cheaply up stumps and drive off down the road. And um, I'd got to a point where I was confident enough I'd be able to find somewhere, even if it had to be a friend's driveway for a while, you know, like that's worst case scenario. But I like that um, flexibility. If you're buying into a community or buying land with other people, you're really locking in and you will, you want to be 110% that everyone's on the same page and you've got those governance and communication structures in place that are robust that can actually deal with um, conflict arising or complex decision-making as a group because that's really challenging. That's one of the hardest bits, I think. And, yeah, I'm very, very lucky to have been able to purchase um, – some rural land myself with my partner uh, we did get it incredibly cheap and that's probably because it's in the middle of nowhere surrounded by national park and um you know it's a long way to drive um, to towns or to employment centers but that's a trade-off we've made and um i'm really thankful for that and it's not um, possible for everyone i realize that but i've got a lot of privilege um that has allowed me to kind of take the path I have so I'm very fortunate that we've got a bit more stability and certainty and we you know we can invest not only in structures that are on wheels but on more permanent um, building projects and um, you know gardening and regeneration and things like that that are more permanent um, and I guess offer another level of resilience in these crazy times um, <laughs> that we're living in. Yeah so I think it's really great that you've had that experience of living in a community and then also contrasting that to having your own tiny home in Byron and then now, you know, having such a big amount of land really remotely away from, from a lot of things and just experiencing all of it and finding what what works for you. I know for me in terms of, you know, being around community and also needing my own space is definitely, like you say, such a balance. And I can imagine that just like, and I think you mentioned this before too, just like all relationships, you know, even if you are on the same page or you have similar values and, and belief systems and those types of things, that there's always going to be, you know, different ways of being and different ways of doing things and different perspectives and, and all of that that I can imagine, you know, will bring up conflict from time to time and maybe for some people just might not be something that, that they want to be a part of or, or to deal with on a regular basis. So I think that's really interesting. And I did remember when I was watching that, the documentary that that was something that came up about the challenges of of being in community. So I think that, yeah, I think it's got its, you know, there's both sides of the story, isn't there? And it depends on really what, how you want to live and, and what you want to do and, and all of that. So yeah, it's really, it's really cool to hear that. And I would also just love to know just with your taking it back to your Byron Bay tiny home for a minute, what was the size of that home? 
It was 4.2 metres long and I think um, 2 point, probably 2.3 metres wide on the floor and, and I think 2.5 at its maximum width, which is kind of the legal restriction in Australia. I didn't have a loft. I didn't have a bathroom um, inside the house. I set up a separate bathhouse and um, compost toilet. Um, so, yeah, it was really just a bedroom um, with a little kitchen on one wall and a potbelly stove, a little couch and uh, an old locker as a wardrobe. So definitely on the smaller end of the scale in terms of, um, you know, what you usually see on the internet. Um, but in a warmer climate like Byron Bay, uh, it was easy to get away with um, if I have to set up an outdoor shower or, um, or use a very simple compost toilet that might be exposed to the elements because I've been moving around, which I had that experience a few times. Yeah, it, it'd be a lot harder if you are based in Victoria or Tasmania or, you know, somewhere in Europe or America um, where you're copping really cold weather. So, you know, I guess, um, yeah, the warmer climate here in Australia definitely kind of makes it easier to, to really strip it back to the bare essentials and still be comfortable. Yeah, because I guess it's um, very much... I see this very commonly with a lot of tiny houses is, you know, you have a lot of people have a deck and then they build things around. And so you kind of bring the outside in and you're kind of almost forced to be outside more and be in nature more and that kind of thing. So, you know, four meters, yeah, it's a, it's a smaller one, but I could see, I feel like for myself, I could probably make it work. It might not be for everyone, but uh, I could see how it would also serve a purpose at a time. So you mentioned that you are off the grid and that you have a composting or had a composting toilet. Um, what kind of setup did you have? How did you, um, so I know there's different okay, well, ways to do things like there's different actual composting toilets and then people do like a bucket system type deal or what did you do? So when I first um, built the house and, and headed north um, to the Byron area, I started really simple um, with a 20 litre fish, fisherman's bucket which is like what they talk about, I think, in the Human Newer Handbook, um, which is a great resource. I saw you shared that recently <laughs> and that you've got a copy. Um, yes. So, yeah, that, that was where I started just because it's, it's really easy and simple and it was just me um, and I, I could um, responsibly find a place that's on high ground, not near the water table, and dig a hole and it just composts. It just turns into soil. Um, and I was very respectful and mindful about the environment and whoever um, was the landowner of the place I was at and communicating how that was managed. And I've done, um, you know, quite a bit of research about um, how compost toilets function. And I think it's a great thing to um, kind of get your head around. It's really just um, the same as a compost pile in your garden with manure and different things being mixed so yeah that was where it started but then once I got to the final property in the um, northern New South Wales um, Byron Hinterland where I set up the Airbnb I, I built uh, a more substantial compost toilet which mimicked uh, what I'd seen working uh, down in Victoria and, and commonly used with a lot of the natural building um, sites and communities that I visited so it was using um, a big um, rubbish bin like a Sulo bin uh, the ones that you put out in your curb and um essentially you modify them to have um, a screen at the bottom maybe six in inches or so up um, with mesh um, so it needs to be hard so it can take weight um, but then have like shade cloth or some different um, courses of, of mesh so it keeps the solids up or the toilet paper and the waste above that and the bottom can um, drain freely and, and take any excess liquid um, and then you'd have a hose um, on the bottom um, that can 
disperse any excess liquid um, because if, if the compost uh, toilet gets too wet, if it holds too much moisture, it's, it goes anaerobic. There's not enough oxygen and it's not going to compost properly uh, and it can get really smelly. But with the one I, that's, that's the standard model I was used to down in Victoria. And I took that and what I did is I added a pea diverter. So the front third of your toilet had a, a, like a plastic mold. You can search it online and, and find them that I think are 20 bucks. And the pea diverter takes, um, I think oh, it must be like 90% of the urine uh, it kind of catches in the way that it's designed and positioned. And I was um, putting that into a separate, I think it was like a, a 44 gallon drum size um, plastic uh, drum and so I was splitting it and that meant that I didn't have to be as worried about um, the moisture content when when people uh, wee in the toilet um, and that meant that I didn't have to um, discard black water because if you mix poo and wee you get black water um, that's probably more well, definitely more hazardous and um, has more more likely to hold pathogens whereas urine on its own uh, is sterile and it's not really a health risk it might be a bit smelly but if you do um, dilute it with water uh, at the right ratio it's actually a really good nitrogen fertilizer on your garden um, so that's that's the system I went for um, in terms of how I pieced it together just adapting and adding a pea diverter to that basic uh, wheelie bin um, compost toilet and I think if you search um, milkwood permaculture compost toilet online you'll you'll see a pretty good photographic guide as to how to put a, a wheelie bin compost toilet together and it's not just them a lot of people have documented um, that design and I think it's a really good one. Um, the catch is that if you need to get council or a state health department to sign off on it, um, each state handles yeah, the approval process for compost toilets in a different way. Um, but I know that some of them um, are definitely not um, accepting of a homemade version of that wheelie bin. Um, I know that there are commercial compost toilet um, systems that you can buy that basically mimic what I've just explained. Uh, but, you know, they're, ma they're making them and getting them moulded with all of those um, drainage functions and the inside's obviously a bit different to your standard wheelie bin. That's already added when you buy it. And they've been, I know in WA, um, there's certain designs like that that are on the market that are pre-approved by the health department in WA. And that means, you know, you don't have to worry about it. So it depends on your situation, um, but it's, it's the same um, system really um, that you can make at home or buy off the shelf it's just a lot cheaper obviously to to modify a wheelie bin yourself so yeah that's a bit of a, <laughs> a breakdown in a nutshell um, the compost toilet systems that I've um, dabbled with and um, right now unfortunately um, the, the property we've moved on to had a, a small transportable building like a donger that we're living in and um, that's on just a standard um, leach drain uh, septic system so we're using it for now and uh it's not the best um but uh, when time allows I i'm really looking forward to to building a compost toilet here and it'll be something very similar to what i had running in byron bay probably using the solo bin or uh if i need to tick some government boxes you know probably um consider getting a commercially available model um so we, yeah we haven't got to the stage we've had to make those decisions yet um, but that's roughly what the system will look like that we'll put together here um, I, I've had a really good experience in, in Byron I, I was operating it in a way where it didn't smell 
And um, part of it for me was because I was running it on Airbnb, it, ha- it really had to function well uh, and give people a positive experience. Um, I wanted, um, you know, a lot of my customers probably had never used a compost toilet before. And I was mindful of that and I didn't want it to be one of those horrible experiences like when you're a kid and you go to a national park and use a long drop and it's dark and smelly and there's flies. Um, yeah, so it was great to get something working so well and um, and I I didn't get any bad reviews on Airbnb about my toilet, so I guess that says something. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. I mean, it's not for everyone, is it? But uh, I think that I know for me, when I have my tiny house built, I definitely want to go that option, uh, you know, mainly for the the eco-friendly type setup. So you mentioned that you you built your own tiny home. You did a DIY build. And I'm just wondering, you know, during that building process, what was one of the biggest struggles throughout that time, uh, if any? Uh, you know, were, were there many mistakes made or was there anything that was extremely challenging that you came up against during the build? Look, it was all really challenging for me because I, I was, I, you know, I'd kind of cut my teeth on a few other tiny house um building projects but I was still learning um and so there was a lot of mistakes um especially because I I got people to come to a workshop and learn building my house so I kind of just had to shut up and let them make mistakes and um make sure that I uh, went back over it and did some quality control if I knew something was a bit out or um yeah just be aware that that's part of the deal when you go down the road of providing um the build processes and educational learning experience for other people as as well as yourself um i was very fortunate um to be in, in that network of natural builders who provided really good mentorship and and friendship uh, and generosity in, in sharing their skills and knowledge with me um so yeah that that made it um a lot easier having people to go to when i get stuck but to be honest um we're so connected to information these days with the internet. So if you really want to know how to do something and you know how to um, work a Google search, then, you know, it's not not too hard to watch a few YouTube videos and kind of figure it out. But um, you need to know where the line is and, and there's certain things that need to be done properly for safety or for health reasons. And I guess it's a bit of a grey area, especially when you're, you're doing it yourself and you might dabble with some 12-volt electronics, let's just say, um, which is safe. Um, but there's a line there <laughs> um, where you get to a certain capacity in a solar system where it can be quite dangerous and you can literally kill yourself if you don't know what you're doing or you, you uh, do a, extend yourself a little bit too far. So I think identifying, um, knowing what you don't know and identifying those gaps in your skill set or in your network skill set and then knowing, okay, well, I need to to do a bit of research and maybe get some quotes from people who do this professionally because um, there's certain things that you, you need to get right and um, could have quite significant consequences and I guess solar systems, um, plumbing potentially, you know, and just the trailer itself, the the structural engineering of trailers and tiny houses are really heavy. That's a lot of weight to be towing on the road. And if something goes wrong and you crash it and you lose your house or someone dies, um, that, that's a reality. Um, so, yeah, that was probably one of the main challenges, just figuring out where that line was and what I could and couldn't do myself. Um, and that's probably going to be different for everyone, depending on your skill set and the people you've got in your network. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier about how you uh, found your parking space for your tiny home in Byron. Did you find that a relatively easy process? Like, did you have a lot of people come back to you when you were searching for it or was it, um, did it take a long time? Was it fairly quick? 
it was quick and easy. I was really yeah. surprised. Oh, I don't know if I was surprised, but it was. I was heartened to get a positive response. I was optimistic um, about you know hoping it would work out. Um, I, I guess I'd been thinking about. Um, I'd seen other people do it in terms of putting flyers up or Facebook posts. And uh, so I had a fairly good idea about what I wanted to ask for and, and how to, um, you know, yeah, use an attractive photo and be very clear about um, what my boundaries were in terms of the places I wanted to be, um, the amount of money I was willing to pay. I think within like 48 hours, I had a list of 30 properties within half an hour drive of Byron Bay. Uh, it was incredible. Uh, I'm, I didn't wow. get to visit some of those. <laughs> I just kind of picked pick the couple that were top of the list and, and they they all worked out. I was at three different properties. One of them was up behind uh, Mullumbimby in Wilson's Creek on a beautiful um, farm a little bit further from the coast and, and that was the first spot. The next was um, a bit closer to Byron, kind of near where the farm is, closer to the highway uh, in Ewingsdale. Uh, on a one-acre property uh, with beautiful gardens and avocado trees. And that was really lovely. It was nice being a bit closer to the action and I'm a surfer, so I didn't have to drive as far to get to the beach. And then the third one ended up being the farm um, that was a bit further inland, but only about a 15-minute drive down to the beach and it was just south of Byron. And the third one actually wasn't from the Facebook ad. Um, That was just kind of social networks of of friends of friends, um, someone knew someone who had a property and um, might be interested and and that worked out for the third go. Um, But it was really nice to kind of put it out there, you know, be optimistic and hopeful. And a lot of people are really fearful, I think, of um, I see a lot of questions online of people that are contemplating tiny houses and and that might be a really significant barrier of feeling a bit daunted by that process of of finding land. But I just kind of wish for the best and put it out there and and I had a really positive response. so I was very fortunate, um, but it was nice to to have that um, choice, I guess, of, of being able to pick and choose a bit, um, just be really clear about what you're looking for. And if you've got a cute picture of your tiny house, it'll definitely help. That's my tip. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. That's great because I agree with you. I see a lot of people asking the same thing in a lot of the different Facebook groups. I mean, there's people advertising that they've got land, but there's also people asking if they know anyone uh, that, you know, who's willing to rent out for someone with a tiny home. And I guess if, you know, the other options are if someone knows someone personally in their life and that's not an option or if buying their own land is not an option, it's really nice to know that, you know, if you just at least try and put it out there, uh, you, you never know what you could find. And as you're as an example, having around 30 offers, that's really definitely heartening to hear because I think I've heard of people as well coming up against that struggle and then that kind of deterring them from even starting the process and that that's a that'd be a shame but that's that's really good to know so thank you for that and uh i'd just love to know as well you know in terms of council regulations and uh, for tiny houses you know they're different in australia at least they seem to be different depending on what state you're in and then some councils are more friendly towards tiny houses and others are not uh, and I think it's a bit of a grey area. It's not so clear. But I'm just wondering, did you have any challenges in terms of council regulations when it came to to parking your tiny house on on land? Um, so in Australia, um, it seems that each state um, has a different set of regulations that apply to caravans because legally speaking, a tiny house on wheels is is a caravan under yeah. the 
general definitions. It's not a building um, because it's on wheels and it can be registered potentially. Um, so I did my research in um, each of the states I was in in terms of um, whether it was a state government um, framework that you had to deal with if you wanted to get approval or whether it was um, delegated down to local government because in some states they, they let local government make those local laws and in, in other states like Western Australia we've got a, a set of caravan camping ground regulations and, a, and an act um, which are set at a state level and the local government doesn't really have any chance to move on that so it's not even a local government issue really well they don't have a an opportunity um, to override that state law so um, to be honest with you, and, and, you know, I've run some tiny house workshops and, and this is always something that comes up and it's good to cover. Um, most tiny houses in Australia at the moment that people are living in are probably flying under the radar and they're not council approved yeah. and they're not in accordance with the state regulations if they're applicable in that state in terms of caravans and, and camping grounds. Um, I did a, a dissertation for my planning degree, actually. It was the last kind of research paper, and I did it on tiny houses on wheels, and I, I did um, some surveys um, to building surveyors and planners in local governments in Western Australia asking some questions. They all got asked the same set of questions about a tiny house on wheels scenario and how it might be approved, and I, I got different answers about the same legislation. Um, so it is a grey area, um, and... <laughs> it's going to be a really challenging one, I think, to regulate well. Um, there's not many examples out there, uh, in Australia at least, that I'm aware of where a local government or a state government has been proactive yet um, yeah. in regulating tiny houses and just acknowledging that, you know, people are choosing to live in tiny houses as a permanent housing option. It's different to a caravan. Um, you know, they, give, they last longer. Um, they're generally built to a higher quality and spec that makes them obviously heavier and um, more wind resistant and not as good to transport regularly like a caravan which prioritizes you know being lightweight and, and more aerodynamic than a tiny house on wheels so i think you know that's where the regulations historically have come from that they're talking about caravans being a recreational vehicle that you use once in a blue moon um, but things have changed and i, I think it's the economic and social um, situation that we find ourselves in in terms of just the, the cost of land and cost of living, people are strained and that's meaning, pe uh, you know, people who live in tiny houses make certain sacrifices, you know, of, of comfort or lifestyle to, to then gain uh, extra time or, or to, to lose some of the stress that goes with the burden of, of big houses and big mortgages. So hopefully the regulations catch up. Um, it's hard to be optimistic, to be honest, without um, any good examples out there but for now it seems that people choosing to live in tiny houses uh, are in a gray area and they're often uh, if you if the neighbors don't complain you don't get caught so mm. the advice I give is you know find a secluded spot and if the neighbors can see you take them some scones and make friends because <laughs> if they make a phone call to the council it could be all over um, but that's the reality it's hard to talk about and I, I work in planning for the government so I've got a yeah, I'm in an interesting space, but, you know, just speaking honestly about it, this is the current situation and it's not unique to Australia. I think in America and, and around the world, we're finding the same thing, these regulatory frameworks that have been developed for housing and for caravanning, um, running in parallel or sometimes joined. Tiny houses aren't really fitting in very well uh, and people are just doing it because of necessity or um, for whatever reason they make those decisions. Um, 
yeah, so that, that deters a lot of people because, you, you know, you might not be able to get insurance and, you you know, someone, if your neighbour dobs on you, you might you might get kicked off that bit of land and have to find somewhere else. And so um, you've got to be okay with that risk and understand um, the parameters, I guess, to make an informed decision. Um, and, you know, if you are going to make a decision like that and live in a tiny house, you just want to be confident that you're not hurting anyone, you're not polluting the environment. It's good to do it responsibly, but in terms of regulations and, and approvals, and that's a really tough space um, and it's generally... Um, the examples out there are when someone does get caught and then the council tries to evict them or the, the state government plays hardball and then people have been, I think in Brisbane, um, there was an example where someone made an appeal and, and was successful and they were allowed to keep living in a tiny house in a backyard. Um, but there are different frameworks in each state, so one doesn't necessarily transfer to the other. There is a difference as well between a tiny house on wheels and if it's a fixed foundation on the land, right? So what I've uh, researched in terms of New South Wales at least, and I think maybe Queensland and it could be the same elsewhere, I'm not 100% sure, maybe you can correct me on this. If you're in a tiny house on wheels, which you said is classed as a caravan that supposedly you can only live in it for like 150 days in a year or something like that, I don't know if it's like three days in a week, and... Uh, that yeah, like there are some people that are that are doing that under the radar, as you said. And I don't know. I I feel like in the last couple of years, especially with everything that's going on, that the tiny house movement here in Australia has grown uh, quite a lot. And I'm seeing tiny building companies, like actual professional building companies, have like longer wait lists and and those types of things too. And so I'm hopeful that you know the more demand that there is for this, and the more people that are looking into this option for their way of living that you know, hopefully there will be some more uh, talk on this and some more clarity and maybe yeah we'll see we'll see what happens with that um yeah i think it's um a good point you raise um you know if you are fixing them to a foundation and taking mm -hmm. them off their wheels or building them from the get-go just without the wheels and putting them on mm -hmm. stumps or, or a pad or whatever it is you're putting it on fixing it to the ground um, there is a pathway there through the building codes to get it approved as a, a dwelling, a house. Um, yeah. the, the challenges come, I guess, um, where the minimum standards for a house have certain requirements um, that kind of can conflict with tiny houses quite easily, like having a separate sink for your bathroom, a separate sink for your laundry and a separate sink for your kitchen. Mm. Often in a tiny house, you've got one or two, not three. Um, a, with a loft, you've got minimum um, ceiling heights, um, but, you know, so we're not living in cramped small conditions in, in, in our housing. Um, but often in tiny houses, if you do have a bedroom loft, the, the ceiling height might be lower than, than um, it's, it's permitted to be under the building code. Uh, and the other one is probably the stairs up to a loft um, probably won't comply. Some will, um, but if you're using a ladder to get up to your loft or it's a steep set of stairs, it's probably not going to comply with the Australian building codes in terms of that ladder access or staircase. Um, so there's some of the common challenges um, in terms of tiny houses and the building code if you do go that route. And it's not to say it's not possible, um, but then you start paying building inspectors and officers and you yeah, it can, it can cost a bit of money and generally people who are building tiny houses on wheels don't have heaps of money to throw around. So that's another bit of a risk, I guess, um, navigating a regulatory uh, process um, where you don't know at the start what it might cost you. 
because you're not necessarily able to meet all of the regulations, how they're intended. You might be using performance criteria to, to come up with an alternative solution, and that just adds an extra cost in terms of paying a consultant um, to, to help you through that process. That's at least how it works in WA. But again, there's probably um, nuances of, of how different states um, kind of structure their, their building processes um, a bit differently. But um, yeah, that, when I, I have interviewed a few um, building surveyors as part of um, that university research I, I did for my dissertation, yeah, that was kind of what they indicated at the time. And, and you know, at the moment um, I'm working um, for a local government and I've got a good relationship with the building surveyor and we have some really fascinating conversations about this stuff uh, in terms of how tiny houses and tiny houses on wheels fit in or don't fit in with different regulations in both planning and building. So, um, yeah, it's a fascinating space, but there's <laughs> no easy answers at, at this time. Yeah, definitely. And so something else that I thought about as you were talking was, because uh, we're talking mostly, I think, about DIY builds, but many of the different tiny house building companies out there at least definitely the one that I'm going to be using, so Designer Eco Tiny Homes uh, in New South Wales, um, they build to the standards of a caravan um, in terms of weight and in terms of size. And I know that uh, you know many of the other ones out there are doing that as well. And I guess if that's an option for people, like it's obviously a more expensive option than doing it yourself, but it's also good to know that there are companies out there doing it um, trying to do you know the right thing or at least doing it in the framework of uh, of a caravan um, but yeah as as we were saying before it's you know the length of living in the space full-time and all of that is is up in the air too um, but you mentioned before about insurance and I'm just wondering like do you have any recommendations for that or what did you do for for your home previously so with insurance, the only insurance I had was public liability insurance to cover me in the event of someone getting injured um, when they were staying in the tiny house through Airbnb. And um, the company I went through was Yui, uh, Y-O-U-I. They're an Australian insurance company and I'd, I'd had them recommended by someone else who was running a, a bit small business in, in the natural building uh, community in Victoria. So um, I had really positive experiences with them and um, you know, that was public liability business insurance. I don't know how you'd go in terms of um, insuring, you know, your tiny house as a caravan or a, a building. Um, you'd have to give them a call. Um, I guess because I was, I, I built my house, um, the DIY route at very low cost. Um, I took a risk by not having insurance in terms of when I was transporting or living in it. Um, if, say, the been a fire or a natural disaster or a car crash um i'm sure you know because i did register my tiny house to drive on the road um i would have been covered for third party insurance had there been an accident on the road but in terms of you know home insurance or contents insurance i um i didn't have anything like that yeah that's really good to know i'm also wondering so kind of going back to your I guess your tiny houses in Byron, but even now you talk about you're living in a donga. And I'm just wondering, is there anything maybe unexpectedly or not unexpectedly challenging about living in small spaces and, and maybe what are some of the challenges you've experienced? It's definitely a different way of, of living and being. And I think um, before I built my first tiny house, I'd gone through a, a couple of years where um, I'd been a bit more transient. I, I'd 
I guess, packed up a big rental house I had with some friends, a share house in, in Fremantle in, in WA um, and spent a few years kind of living with friends or family friends or, um, you know, moving into state. Um, so I, I naturally went through a process of um, putting some things in storage and prioritising the items and the, the bits of clothes that I, I needed with me. Um, and I was essentially living out of a suitcase. So it made it quite easy. I can imagine if you're... Um, you're living in a large house and then you suddenly build or have built um, a tiny house um, that you want to move into. Um, yeah, it's going to be a lot of work of prioritising what makes the cut and what you have to let go of and sell or put in storage. I think a tiny house, big shed is a bit of a motto of mine now because, you know, I love, I think I'm going to keep pursuing carpentry and building and that means I've got a lot of tools and I've also got a lot of timber that I hoard for when I need it so I think just the reality of life is you know it's really hard to fit everything in a tiny house on wheels especially when it's as small as the one I built and there are things you don't want in your house you need in the workshop or the shed so um, I, I think the other side of that is even when you have made those decisions and you've culled your things and you've got them all in the tiny house in their place any clutter or mess um, stands out um, because you have limited bench space or table space. So that's certainly a bit of a challenge uh, that I've faced and I probably go through waves of uh, living like a bit of a pig and then cleaning it all up for <laughs> Airbnb or when I've got guests or when my, my partner gets on my case, which is fair enough because uh, I'm a bit more of a slob than her. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's just exaggerated in a, a small space because, um, yeah, there's just lack of room to hide that mess. Yeah, I guess that's just like anything in life, you know, always going to come up against little challenges or if you're put into a situation where, you know, you're living in a different way or out of your comfort zone or something that's not so familiar, then, yeah, there's always going to be this way of needing to adapt. Is there anything that you would do differently with your tiny house build? Um, I think one big lesson I've learned is how important um, the trailer base is because I was doing it on a really tight budget, I kind of cheaped out and used a recycled caravan chassis. I was not wanting to be in a situation um, where I had safety concerns about that not being strong enough. So it kind of meant that I skimped on the initial purchase of the trailer. I think it literally cost me $350 for a single axle caravan trailer. Um, but then um, through the journey of building the house and um, figuring out what uh, modifications I had to do to the trailer to make it safe and compliant. I, I probably had to spend a bit of extra money and time problem solving and getting um, engineers and trailer professionals to um, replace components and to beef up the structural base so that it was strong enough to put the weight that I was going to build onto it. So I think it's a really important point for people to just um, be realistic from the start about um, the weight that your tiny house is, is going to kind of come in at when it's finished and loaded with all of your stuff and making sure that um, the structure itself, the axles, the brakes, the tyres, the, the bearings, everything has to be rated uh, accordingly so that you don't um, come unstuck when you're on the road uh, moving at 100Ks or however fast you're going with your <laughs> tiny house. It's a very nerve-wracking experience when you first move a tiny house. I think a lot of people have have that feeling when they see their tiny house on the road or it, it's, you know, coming close to low-hanging branches in, in driveways. It's, it's pretty nerve-wracking because there's so much at stake. So for me, um, that was the biggest takeaway. And if I, you know, the next build, I certainly got 
I did use another recycled caravan chassis, but I, I got a much chunkier, <laughs> better rated uh, kind of later model uh, one. And, and I'm, I guess with my builds, I have been uh, at the smaller end of the scale in terms of weight and size. And um, I've made sure that all of the timbers I've used have been um, pine or cedar uh, kind of light woods um, to minimize uh, the weight. Yeah, that's one of the challenges when you're doing it low cost because it's a, it can be a big outlay um, to get a big double or triple axle trailer fabricated uh, as a custom. Some for some people it might be better to not have it on wheels um, if you can, you know, get access to land and build it on stumps. Um, you can take maybe ten grand off off the build cost, but everyone's situation's different, so there's probably no one fits all. Yeah, that's really good advice, and. You know, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners today just as we wrap up the conversation? I think I'd encourage people to have a crack. Like if you've never picked up a hammer or a drill, um, start small, build a, a table out of an old pallet or a chicken coop or something really easy that if you stuff up, it doesn't matter. There's nothing at stake and kind of ease your way in. That was my trajectory anyway in terms of building confidence um, with hand tools and, and construction methods because, you know, I came from a background where I didn't have those skills and had to learn. Um, and for some people, you might kind of go through that process in your mind and decide that it's not for you and you'd rather outsource that to someone else. Um, and that's fine. You, you don't have to do it yourself or you can do little bits of it yourself and get other people to come and fill those gaps. So I think um, just being realistic about, what you can and can't do. And if you do want to kind of jump in the deep end, uh, ease your way in, maybe help someone else on their project, um, volunteer for, for someone if you know a carpenter and, you know, do someone else's um, project, build a patio or, uh, or something like that um, with someone who's qualified and knowledgeable. And then that'll give you a bit of a realistic taste for what it's like because uh, there is a lot to learn uh, in terms of carpentry and um, all of the other trades which go into to building a house. Oh, that's great. You know, I was thinking about this probably a couple of weeks ago because I'm, as I mentioned before, I'm going to have my tiny house built by a building company, but I also want to have a hand in, you know, something to do with the process of my home and thinking maybe I could start small and, and build a deck or, or a shed as you talked about before or something like that. And I think that's really good advice is starting small, start where you are, and yeah, I think that's going to be really helpful for people. So, and I'll also, I'll link to everything in the show notes that uh, we've mentioned today, just so if anyone wants to check those out, they'll be available uh, in the episode show notes on tinyhouseconversations.com. And where can people find you online, Emmett? So I've got a website set up, which is um, thewoodbutcherstinyhouse.com. There's not a whole lot on there at the moment. That's where I was kind of um, giving out information about upcoming events when I was running some workshops um, and also had some information and links for my Airbnb operation. Um, there's nothing happening in terms of that stuff at the moment, but there's some photos um, and some links to a couple of videos that have been, um, I think you mentioned, um, that you know the documentary that's on YouTube, uh, A Simpler Way, is up there and, and also a tour of my tiny house uh, with Bryce and Russa from Living Big in a Tiny House. So, yeah, that, that's probably the best way. And there's some links to social media as well. I've been a little inactive for a while, but I suspect it will ramp up in the next couple of years uh, once I get my tiny house back from uh, the East Coast and, and we start um, doing a bit more here on the property in WA. Perfect. And I'll also link to all your details in the show notes as well. 
And, you know, Emmett, thanks so much for taking the time today for sharing your stories and experiences. I think it's going to be really helpful for a lot of people. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. For sure. And if you're listening to this episode, thanks for taking the time to hang out with us. Make sure you go check out Emmett online. And if you want more Tiny House Conversations, I release new episodes every Thursday. So if you hit the subscribe button, you'll know exactly when the latest episode is live. We'll see you in the next session. Hey, Tiny Lifers. Thanks so much for listening. And before you go, one of the best ways to support this podcast is to share the love. That way I can keep bringing you more valuable Tiny House Conversations to help you on your own tiny journey. So make sure you head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this episode and leave a five-star rating and review. Thanks so much in advance. I appreciate you and see you in the next session.